Welcome back to A View from the Couch. My name is Rich. And I'm Jen. And today we're going to start season two of the all new, all different View from the Couch. We're going to do tax season. Tax season. Yes, it's our favorite season of the year, <laughs> theoretically. I don't know if no. it's our favorite. It's definitely busy, that's for sure. Well, no no hyperbole intended, I guess, but take that for what you will. Look, I'm not a fan of taxes, but this, these movies, now, I figured it was a good idea to do something like this because it's tax season, right? Mm-hmm. And so these movies all have an accountant that's prominent or they have to do with like taxes and like how they factor into the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- this one's the big one, right? We let, we're leading with the big one. This is the one that you always go to as a as an accountant in your private life. <laughs> you always point to this one and say, "See, accountants are cool." Well, not necessarily this movie, but the situation with <laughs> right, Al Capone, sure. yeah. and you know, it took an IRS accountant to take them down. Basically, it took a tax person to take them down. So. Treasury Department accountant. Yeah. That's right. We're talking about The Untouchables, the 1987. It's a very 80s movie, right? It's mm-hmm. got Bob De Niro in it, which is like he was kind of the king of like 80s mob movies, right? Mm-hmm. So, had you seen this movie before we were doing this? I show? have not seen okay. this before. Okay. I have seen it now, but I had not well, seen yeah, it. Yeah, obviously. Well, I, I have seen this movie. I've seen this movie a tons of times. My, my mom and dad loved this movie. Okay. And when I was a kid, I thought this was like the most boring thing ever. But I could see that. As an adult, as a film aficionado, as a film student even when I was in college, this was a movie that I really appreciated. Hmm. So, yeah. So I've seen this I've seen this movie at least about a dozen times or so, just here and there and during film class and for various like reports and that sort of thing, so. Sure, sure. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. So how about this? Why don't we talk a little bit about the actual events that are depicted in the movie? Because lo and behold, right, this movie is fictitious, right? I mean, the characters are real, but the movie's fictitious. Is that what is that what it is? Yeah. So this movie, while it's, I think, what does it say? Based on true events? Yeah. I found in my research very few actual <laughs> events. This movie is a work of pure fiction with the exception of some of the names are the same and there's a couple events that maybe actually happened. That's it. So if you want (laughs) to go into this movie thinking you're going to kind of learn about Al Capone or how he was taken down, this Mm. is not the movie to watch. This This is is absolute fiction. So loosely, very, very, very loosely based on... Mm -hmm. The real life events. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because like you have Elliot Ness and mm-hmm. Oscar Wallace, who was mm-hmm. the IRS person. They didn't work together in real life. Wasn't Wallace from the Treasury Department, or was he in the? Was he from the IRS in in the in the in in real life, and they just put him from the Treasury Department in the movie? He's not even a real person. Uh. <laughs> Kind of hard to work together if you're not a real person, right? Yeah. So his character, I believe, is based off of Special Agent Frank Wilson of the Intelligence Unit. They were investigating Capone for income tax evasion. So that character is based off of Frank Wilson. So this this character in the movie, Oscar Wallace, didn't exist. Hmm. Interesting. Now, in in the movie, Elliot Ness was called a treasury agent right mm-hmm. but he was an actual he was a cop right he wasn't an agent of the treasury department he was a police officer he was the chief investigator for the prohibition bureau for chicago right so he had nothing to do with the department of treasury and and didn't work with the department of treasury to do the income tax <laughs> evasion case i mean it was a completely separate thing clearly a made-up thing so that he so that he still is a person of 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 position, but not knowledgeable in f- police field work so that Malone's character makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that Malone has to teach him how to cop is is kind of a prominent part of this movie. Right. Okay. I think it makes sense just for movie telling 
what these each of these characters are. I mean, if you're going to tell a story about taking down Capone and you're going to follow this IRS agent, that's going to be a, probably a boring movie. Taxes are not fun. Doing audit stuff is not fun. That is going to be a boring movie. So I think they're like, well, let's try and tell a story, but let's make this interesting involve these prohibition raids because that's what he did is he hit Capone in the pocketbook because they were doing raids and they were confiscating you know money and booze and Mm -hmm. stuff and so he was costing Capone a lot of money hit him where it hurts yes what's interesting to me about Ness is that this is not the only work of fiction that is based on a fairy tale of Ness's life Oh, yeah? Yeah, the book Torso, it's a comic, it's a graphic novel, actually, by Brian Michael Bendis. It is about the Cleveland Torso murders, which, if you're not familiar, it's a it's a series of murders that were never solved in the mid, mid to late 1930s in Cleveland. Body parts started showing up in various areas of the, of the lake shore, and Elliot Ness was there. He was the director of public safety at the time. But he didn't have anything to really do with the investigation other than being the person that oversaw the department that did the investigation. Mm-hmm. But in this book, Torso, he is the main character. They they did the same thing to him here it, as, as gets done with the Untouchables movie in that they fictionalized his participation in hmm. the main part of it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yep. yep. I wonder what it is about Elliot Ness that like... People want to do that to him. I don't. I... <laughs> well, I think it is kind of interesting because he did build a group of people that were called the Untouchables. Sure, yeah. Um, and I suppose people find that interesting and want to know more about it. But this isn't the story to learn more about it because they there's it's so much fiction in here. I mean, he's wildly popular in in American like you know historical folklore, if you want to call it that. Even the town that he died in, he he only lived in this town in Pennsylvania for a few months, but even that town has an Elliot Ness Festival every third week of July. Hmm. So what's up with that? Why what, what why is this guy so impressive if he didn't actually do the things that we in the in in like in like popular culture we know him for? No idea. He must have done something. I don't know enough about also, him. Also, I'm gonna, just real quick, a couple yeah. other things that are not true. And, and this makes me think Elliot Ness sounds like kind of a real, I don't know, straight lace kind of boring. Like, like there's no action in this dude's life. So, <laughs> so, so wait, am I straight laced and boring? <laughs> I don't have any action in my life. So Capone, knowing that killing a prohibition agent would just lead to more problems. Mm-hmm. He never put an attempt out on their lives, never put a contract out or a hit out on these guys. Sure, yeah. So that in the movie is completely fabricated. But that's better storytelling. It is better storytelling, but it never happened. Right. In the movie, you've got Elliot Ness, who's a happily married man and has a kid and a baby son. Yeah. In real life, he's been married three times. He was married three times. Okay. And the only child he ever had was actually an adopted kid. So he, I mean, that's completely fabricated. Yeah, but there, there's a. Re- I think the reason that you fabricate that is that it gives him something that he's fighting for, and we're actually going to see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it up. Where there's a couple mm-hmm. of shots where we get to see that mm-hmm. that this is that this is his whole world. But this it's is it's not true. So that's no, just yeah. something else to keep in mind when you're watching this. Capone and Ness never actually came face to face in real life. Oh, he didn't get to teach him a lesson? No. Oh. No, that so they they never encountered each other in real life. <laughs> I am not I'm unsurprised by any of this. Elliot Ness didn't like guns. His holster was empty most of the time. He That's never, interesting. He never shot anyone in his entire career. He, he a, killed how many people in this movie? Yeah, yeah. He didn't kill anybody in yeah. real life. So he's a cop but he never carried a weapon. Interesting. So yeah, there's just a lot of differences mm-hmm. from real life Elliot Ness to what's portrayed on the screen here. Safe to say that The Untouchables, uh, whether it's entertaining or not, is a work of fiction then. Absolutely. Uh, An absolute work of fiction, Mm -hmm. with the exception of the names. Well, why don't we do this then? Why don't you get into the cast and crew, and then let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about this work of fiction. 
All right. This movie was directed by Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma is somebody that I want to talk about. So this guy is a student of Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock, and I, I really appreciate Alfred Hitchcock. The, his movies, in, including this one, have a lot of homage to the Alfred Hitchcock films out there. He is he, uh, he, he directed Carrie. He directed Dress to Kill. He directed Scarface, this one, obviously. He also directed the first Mission Impossible movie. Which is kind of weird, right? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of different it from the other one. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't like fit in with like Blowout or Casualties of War or even Carlito's Way. There's a lot of like gangster and war pictures in this guy's life, mm-hmm. or like serial killer movies or like pot boiler police, you know, noir movies. And then there's Mission Impossible. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah, but he is a, he's a guy that I I mean I've I've liked several of his films, but I don't like all of his films including that first Mission Impossible movie. I, I don't know what it is about him, but he's just not, he's not consistent enough for me to enjoy things. Like he did that movie Snake Eyes. Do you remember that movie with Nick Cage? I don't um, think I ever saw it. It's a, okay, it's about a murder that happens, an assassination that happens, and like it happens in Vegas. So there's like 1,500 or 15,000 like suspects. They've got to figure out who the hell did it. And it is really, it's a slog. It is really drawn out. For a movie that's less than two hours long, it feels like it's a three-hour movie. Mm. So, yeah. But he, I mean, I guess that's not like, okay, so I guess Mission Impossible is not the first time he's ever done something that's more popular culture than than his other movies because he started out with Carrie. That was his first film. Or not really his first film. That was his breakout film. Mm-hmm. That was the one that like kind of put him on the map. So, I mean, it's not like he never did that. It's just that it's so infrequent that the Mission Impossible one seems like this weird blip on his on his thing. But I always appreciate him because of his Alfred Hitchcock pedigree, I guess. Does that make sense? So that's a lot of information about Brian De Palma. Yeah, I I, I actually used him as a subject for a paper in oh, in college. So, so you know a lot about him. I know I know a bit about him. Not a lot. I wouldn't say I know a lot about him, but you guys I know, are besties, right? No, I know enough about him to know like his influences and know like you know some things about some of his films. Also, Dress to Kill had Nancy Allen in it. Who, when I was a kid, Nancy Allen was like a big crush for me, and she was. In that one, she's also in Carrie. Okay, mm, so, yeah. All right. So this was written by David Mamet. Yes. Okay. So I want to talk about David Mamet too, if I could. Theater kid here. I was a theater kid. Now I'm a theater old man. But as a theater person, David Mamet is the like the pinnacle of dialogue writing. This dude writes very specific dialogue. If you want to see a good example of how specific his dialogue has to be and how it has to be delivered in a certain way. Watch Glengarry Glenn Ross. It's very much like this movie. It has this very stylized dialogue mm. to it. Okay. Yeah. It's I'm a fan of David Mamet as well. So just okay. safe to say this is a this is one of those movies that hits a couple of spots for me. So Okay. Yeah. All right, we have Kevin Costner in here as Elliot Ness. Now, this is before <laughs> Kevin Costner like really hit big. So he was, I don't know how many movies he had before this, but this was kind of what started launching him into some bigger roles. The, the thing about Kevin Costner is that he was just an athlete who like stumbled into acting because he felt like he wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Never got trained on anything in it fucking shows i mean i'm not trying to like shoot anybody in the foot here or anything like that or stab anybody in the back there's one real good reason why kevin costner is as popular as he is and that's he's hot right or he was 80s hot yeah i think well i don't know if i agree that he's a terrible actor i think that some things he does okay in and some he does not there are some movies that he does not but (laughs) i think kind of for him he does have the looks, but he also has some charisma to him. So I think there's a draw there that people find him interesting and want to see what he's doing. Do you think he has charisma when he's delivering lines like he's delivering in this movie? As if he's a wooden stump um, saying lines to the camera? Well, I don't think all of his lines landed like that. Some of them did. Uh, yeah. I think some were fine. But I'm talking about Kevin Costner in general. Like in general, there are 
he he does have a charisma to him. So this guy had been working for about six years before this came out in a lot of little bit roles mm-hmm. and small things, right? But he was in the movie Silverado two years before this came out, and that was kind of his like coming out movie, mm-hmm. right? So this this movie's the one I think that put him on the map. I don't mm-hmm. think he was, I don't remember, I don't think he was the lead guy in Silverado, but this is the movie that put him in the lead role. And for better or for worse, this is what we got, you know? I mean, this is this is who we've got. We got him, for, and then he starts doing all these baseball movies. He's got a baseball trilogy of movies, this mm-hmm. guy, right? And uh, he was in that Robin Hood movie, that god-awful Robin Hood movie. And he was in JFK where it, I feel like he was suited to play the character, the Jim Garrison character that he played in JFK. But I think Costner is one of those guys that just, you could replace him with just about anybody else and you'll have a better acting performance. But it's you, possible. It's possible. You can tell how bad he is at his job. When he sets, when he goes up against Kevin Costner, or excuse me, it goes up again when he goes up against himself. <laughs> you can tell how terrible he is when he body when he when he like jumps into the body of somebody else, quantum leap style, and goes up against himself. No, no, what I was going to say, I'm, I misspoke, obviously, but what I meant to say was when Kevin Costner goes up against Sean Connery, or when he goes up against Robert De Niro, you can damn well tell who is a trained. Fine actor, mm-hmm. and who is a piece of wood trying to stand up next to them and go? Well, and be I good. would agree that Kevin Costner is not at the level of Sean Connery or Robert De Niro. I I absolutely agree with that, but I don't I don't dislike his acting as much as you do. So he can't hold a candle <laughs> to either of the. He can't hold a candle to Andy Garcia, and Andy Garcia has like four lines in this movie. Yeah, well, and and he's pretty. Fresh coming into the acting field himself, isn't he? Andy Garcia in this movie? Yeah. Yeah. But still. So, and we'll get to him in a minute. Yeah, but. we'll get to him. So next we have Sean Connery playing Jim Malone. Mm-hmm. This is Sean Connery's only Oscar win for this role. He won an Oscar. Well, you're not going to win Oscars for James Bond. But I have a little bit of an issue with this because he's supposed to be Irish, but he just has a Scottish accent. Oh, so, that's Sean Connery. So why don't they just call him Scottish then? Why does he have to be Irish? Because in, in Chicago, the cops are Irish. I don't care. This is a work of fiction at this point. Hold on. <laughs> why don't you just say that the that the sub-commander is Scottish in Hunt for Red October? Because he's got a Scottish accent in that. Yeah. I've he's never got seen a Scottish movie, accent so. in everything he... You've never seen Hunt for Red October? No. Uh-uh. Ooh, you're missing out. That's a good flick. He has a Scottish accent in everything that he does. He never changes his accent. And I'm not hating on it because Sean Connery is... He, he was a joy to watch. But I just thought it was <laughs> weird when we're supposed to have an Irishman and he's got the Scottish accent. And I'm like, okay, you are already giving us an absolute work of fiction. Change the damn background of it. So it makes sense. <laughs> Sean Connery was a bodybuilder. So we have another athlete here. But when he got into acting, he actually went to a conservatory and learned the trade. It's so much different than what Kevin Costner did. And it shows. But... If you know your limitations and you know you can't do accents, why would you try and force yourself to do an I'm Irish accent? I'm not saying he should. I'm saying change him to a Scottish cop. It doesn't make sense. Doesn't Scottish matter. Cop. The rest of this stuff no, is but I mean, not real- reality. Okay, I know, but Scottish cop doesn't make sense. Irish cop in a town that is predominantly Irish and Irish Catholic makes sense. I'm just telling when he you plays what an I Ameri- think about when it. When he so. plays an American, he has a Scottish <laughs> accent. This is one that I'm going to always let go because Sean Connery is Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. He plays an American in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. He plays a Russian in Hunt for Red October, Scottish accent. He plays a British guy in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Sean Connery just does Sean Connery. It's like Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage is always going to do Nicolas Cage, you know? Mm-hmm. Difference is one of them is better at it. <laughs> Just trying to say my point. I got you. No, I appreciate your point, and I and it is a it is a common argument against Sean Connery. 
And the- I, I don't, I'm glad he was in this. Mm-hmm. I think he was great in this. Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like change his background because obviously yeah. <laughs> he's not good. Going to do an Irish accent, right? Right. Just change it. And I know you're saying it doesn't make sense, but no. I don't care. You're giving me a work of fiction already. Just make it make sense. And I want to be clear that I absolutely 100% respect your opinion there. And it's an opinion that is held by a lot of people, myself included, especially with the Hunt for Red October. But if you are okay with it, you just let it go. You just, mm-hmm. It's one of those things that you just like let it roll. Once you know, once we were into it, mm-hmm. I didn't even think of it again. But right. when it was first introduced and who he was, and I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's there's an, there's an old joke that goes... It's. I want to say it was some comedian that said it. It might have even might even have been Robin Williams, who said, "Sean, we want you to do a Russian accent. You think you can do a Russian accent?" And he says in his Scottish accent, "Okay." And then they tell him to do his line, and he does his line, and he's got it in Scottish accent. And the director goes, "Great job, Sean." <laughs> <laughs> If that gives you any idea, I mean, the dude had pull, right? He's yeah. He was the he was the James Bond before anybody else, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm going to continue here. Yeah, we got do, a couple yeah. more. We've got Charles Martin Smith as Oscar Wallace. Yeah. Who we've already talked about was a fictional character. He was, right. did not exist. Andy Garcia as George Stone and Robert De Niro as Al Capone. Yeah. Good old Bob De Niro. That guy are you a fan of Robert De Niro? Do you find his do you find him compelling as an actor? I have not seen him in as many things as you have, but what I have seen him in, I think he's pretty good. Okay. So I, I do enjoy his stuff. Sometimes he might be a little over the top on a couple things, but <laughs> for the most part, I think he's pretty good. So Out of all the guys that came out of the Godfather films, he is not the one that is the most over the top, which I think he always has going for him. Al Pacino's that guy. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So like, no matter what Al Pacino, no matter what, Robert De Niro ever does, he's never going to be more over the top than Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah. So he's, you know, like I said, that's that's something that he's, you know, it's a little feather in his cap there, right? At least I'm not as as obnoxious <laughs> as Al. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you know what? I could probably ramp this up a little bit because nobody is going to be like, wow, that guy from The Godfather is really off his rocker. No, that's Al Pacino. All right, let's get into the story here. Let's do it. In 1930s Chicago during Prohibition. Al Capone is the not-so-private face of organized crime. The local law enforcement are mostly on the take, and the few businesses who stand up to Capone's pressure often find themselves attacked. And it is one of those attacks which eventually gets the feds involved, sending a Treasury Department agent named Elliot Ness to investigate and root out Capone's crime family once and for all. This opening scene to me is iconic. The scene where we're kind of coming down from the top mm-hmm. and we're and Al Capone is entertaining the reporters saying I don't bring violence that's not me. Mm-hmm. I would never tolerate violence and then we cut to violence. Mm-hmm. Horrible violence against a child. Unintentional but still I don't think Frank Nitti the guy that set the bomb gave a shit who he was killing. Right. The idea was just to strike fear in the heart of the business owners. Right. You don't say no to Capone. Right. You don't say no to Capone. So I really love the juxtaposition there. It's really Mm -hmm. cool. I love the shot where we're pushing in from the top to Capone. Mm -hmm. And then the next shot, we're pushing in from the side to the little girl crossing the street and coming into the the thing. We're we're walking up to the action as it's occurring. Mm -hmm. I love. I love the way this film is shot. I paid attention to none of that. So Well, that's um, what you have me here for. So <laughs> for, for me, I thought the opening was fine. It seemed to go on a little long. It was okay. It, it got a little talky in there. Did you did you at least like the bit with the barber where the barber like cuts him? Yeah, he looked he, terrified he like, did. "Oh my god, I'm going to die." Yeah, he's he knew it was like he was going to die, but yeah. Capone to his to his audience, he can't look like he's going to do right, that, right? right? And it was completely Capone's fault, too. Yeah. It wasn't this barber's fault. The guy asked, the the reporter asked Capone a question. The barber is just getting ready to put the blade on his face, and the blade wasn't even on his face yet. Mm-hmm. But Capone turned to his right and got nicked. Yeah. But the barber is terrified. Yes. Yeah. 
So Ness partners with the police department, but his, his showy and ultimately futile efforts make him something of a laughing stock. Now, this first thing where he gets on that, that tank where they're pushing, they're going to push through the thing. He's like, let's go do some good boys. Like that was, that's really hokey. And even some of the cops are going to call that out later, Mm -hmm. probably cops that are on the take, to be honest with you. Right. But him pulling that umbrella out and becoming kind of a, like a, like a parody of a quote unquote good cop. Mm -hmm. How did you like that? How did you like that whole thing? Did you expect him to pull an umbrella out of there? Not an umbrella, but I did not think he was going to find what he was going for. Okay. Because, I mean, I know Capone had a lot of police on the take. My guess was the police informed him. They yeah. moved stuff out. I anticipated it, it was not going okay. to be what he wanted it to be. It doesn't play like it's supposed to be a surprise. They linger mm-hmm. just long yeah. enough that you're like, oh, this is definitely not right. something right. that's going to happen. So the... Plus, we need to work up to him actually having a successful bust, you know? Right, Give yeah. us a little something to, you know, build up to. Yeah. So the night after that particularly feeble attempt at a bust, he meets beat cop Jimmy Malone, who gives him a little solid advice on police work. And I think this is why they changed Elliot Ness from cop to treasury agent, because they need him to have a reason to bond with Malone. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that the, I think that theatrically this works. He's the only good cop in a town of bad cops. Right? Yeah, he's the one good apple in a batch of bad. Yeah, I love the whole line of why did you turn your back on me? And he's like, well, you said you're a treasury agent. Yeah. Why, who, why would anybody yeah. say that? I, uh, I love that hysterical. whole interaction. Yeah. Who would who would admit to being that which he is not? Yeah, like <laughs> that. It's a it's a not so subtle dig, yeah. but it is it is pretty funny, right? It brought yeah. a smile to my face. Uh, yeah. It brings a smile to my face every time I see it. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. That was in my notes. So I'm glad you I'm glad you <laughs> liked that too because that was that's one of my more favorite. Well, parts it the makes movie. me think of you know why would you admit to being a tax accountant you know, type of thing? <laughs> that's what it reminded me. Right? Of, so. <laughs> yeah. But but Malone gives him this piece of advice. He says that rule number one is to always make sure you go home alive at the end of the night. And then when he turns away from Ness, he says, here endeth the lesson, mm-hmm. which I've, I love that line. I'll, I used to use that on Miles sometimes, just. Don't just, do it now. You will get the biggest eye roll ever. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, teenage boy. <laughs> teenage boys. So the, the next day, Ness visits with Malone and gives him a chance to join Ness's squad. Malone. Like we said, he's one of the few cops in Chicago who isn't corrupt. He eventually agrees to join uh, Elliot Ness. And under his tutelage, Ness recruits a rookie cop from the police academy. He says, look, if you're going to, if you want to make sure you don't have a rotten apple, you pick it from the tree. You don't pull it from the bushel. You mm-hmm. pick it from the tree. So they go to the they go to the police academy and they find this kid, this George Stone. And here's where we start to see that anti-Italian prejudice I, There's a lot of it in this. I was cringing a lot in this, like, oh God. <laughs> okay, and I'm not because because Italians didn't because Italians could like pass as white. They could pretend to be something. They could just change their name, like like mm-hmm. Stone does here, right? Mm-hmm. I don't feel like they were as trod upon as others. Obviously, right? Uh, yeah. But obviously. there was a lot of anti-Italian sentiment, yeah. especially yeah. at the turn of the century. It, yeah, it still made me cringe as they yeah. were saying stuff. I'm there, like, oh, yep. God. <laughs> there were a lot of Italians, immigrants, around like the beginning of the turn of the century. That was when a lot of people started to come in. Mm-hmm. And they were they came to the cities. They went to the cities because that's where the jobs were. Mm-hmm. And so there were always like little enclaves of Italian people. You can always find a little Italy somewhere there's even one in St. Paul. It's a small, small one anymore, but there was even one in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And they were very insular because people didn't trust them, so they kept to their own. Mm-hmm. And this is why. This is another reason why right here, the fact that you know Malone calls him a WAP and he says he's, you know, he's thieving, uh, a no good part of a thieving race or something like that. And it's like, okay, that is what, makes stone like try to react to that he's mm-hmm. he's like hey what'd you say pal uh you know because i'll 
you know, I'll kick your ass or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when Malone's like, oh, yeah, I'll take this one. This one's good. He's a good one. He's got a little attitude on his shoulder. He's got a little chip. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. I did like that that scene in that, that call out of Stone to see just how far he would go before he would lose his temper. Right. Was, I think, what Malone was really going for. But later we're going to find that he's actually going to start using, you know, anti-Italian epithets again. Yeah. It's not like a, an isolated incident. Right, yeah. <laughs> I took it as, after this scene, I took it as he was trying to get a gut reaction, like, what is yeah. this guy going to do? Mm-hmm. But then when we see it later, I'm like, no, he's just a dick. He's he's a racist. There's, <laughs> there's a couple other times where he's going to do that, you know. I'm sure if... <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. Stone is an expert marksman who immediately agrees to Ness's invitation. Like, as soon as Ness is like, hey, I want you to be part of a special team, he's like, fuck, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> he's I in. Shoot people? Cool. Yeah, but he's like the best shooter mm-hmm. in this whole class from what the guy, the cop, the head cop says there, mm-hmm. which is going to come into play later. It's going to come into play yes, later. Yes, it does. Just another little seed, little apple seed that they throw down, right? So with the addition of Treasury Department accountant Oscar Wallace, who, as we know, is not real. The untouchables are now formed. Now we have our untouchables. It's four guys. Wallace checks into Capone's financial records, and he discovers that Capone hasn't filed an income tax return for four years. And he suggests that they go after him for tax evasion, but he's just kind of blown off they're like nah this isn't there's uh, right when you're trying to take him down for prohibition tax evasion seems like a silly thing to try and go after right but you get him any way you can right 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 so the men raid one of capone's liquor warehouses in the city library which is directly across from the police station they waltz out of the police station across the street to to the public library and bust into the private room that they have like hollowed out or whatever mm-hmm. or like uh, full of booze and they start finally they're starting to receive positive press mm-hmm. someone actually names them the untouchables in the press yep right but it also attracts the attention of Al Capone who tries to bribe Ness he sends some city ombudsman or something i don't yeah. know who he sends over there i don't know who it was send somebody over there to bribe him mm-hmm. and ness turns him away mm-hmm. which turns out as a mistake because ness now goes to a much or not ness excuse me which turns out as a mistake because capone now is going to go to something a little more unsavory he sends his hitman frank nitty to wait until ness is home comes home from mm-hmm. from from work one day with a present in his hand and nitty starts talking to him from his car he's like hey little girl's having a birthday huh and it's at that point that ness is kind of aware that wait a minute this guy knows a little bit too much right you know mm-hmm. and then he threatens him and he takes off but because of that ness gets his family to safety he sends them out out, out of the city mm-hmm and Malone and Stone show up at the Ness home to kind of guard and wait and see because they were assuming that somebody was going to attack that night. But when, once, when Malone shows up, when Malone shows up, he informs Elliot that he has information about a shipment of alcohol that's going to be coming across the Canadian border. And Ness and his crew fly up to Canada and partner with the Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to intercept the transport and capture one of Capone's bookkeepers. Are the Mounties just played for laughs here? I kind of, kind of. I also was like, okay, all of a sudden we're in a Western movie? I mean, they're on horses and shooting guns. Yeah, that's what the the Mounties do. What is happening here? They're on the Canadian (laughs) frontier. What are you talking about? It makes perfect sense. Come on, it's 1930s Canadian frontier. Why are our untouchable guys all on horses and stuff now. Do they all have training on horses and and how to do that? I mean, it just seemed weird and out of nowhere. Like, I get it that you go with them, and I guess I understand why the Canadian Mounties would be on the horses, but Mm -hmm. our guys all of a sudden on horses... What should they have been on? 
Unicycles? No, they could be like in a car somewhere or hiding somewhere. I don't know. I it suppose, just all yeah. of a sudden seemed weird that all of a sudden we've got this line, this line across the mountain ridge, <laughs> you know, with all of these people on horses. It just seemed a little weird all of a sudden out of place on this thing. Personally, I think it would have been a little weirder if they had each like teamed up with a Mountie and were riding behind them. That would have been way weirder. That would have been dumb. So I think them being on their own horses was fine. <laughs> Also, we do get a great, with them being on the horses, we do get a great line from Sean Connery with something about might as, you got to die someday or something like that mm-hmm. as he's charging in to save the day or oh, sure, get the yeah. guy or yeah. whatever, you know. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of great lines from Sean Connery's character in this movie. I think he has all of the great lines, actually. Definitely has all the best deliveries. <laughs> yeah. After they capture one of the bookkeepers, Wallace takes a look at these ledgers and he sees that there's all kinds of these coded entries in the ledgers with like blank names. So we don't know who they are, but we know that somebody knows who they are. And they entice the bookkeeper to testify against Capone. The way that they do that is pretty fucking cool, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure pretty sure you would get in big trouble if you tried something like this nowadays. But <laughs> mutilating a corpse? Yeah. <laughs> and also this didn't really happen. But well, it was a very cool way for him to get him to turn. It plays really well, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, and that dude knew what was up. Like he had no idea that the corpse on the on the 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 doorstep was a corpse. He thought it was still his buddy. Yeah. Cuz the way Malone plays it off. Yeah. And then he props him up by the window and, you know, shoots him in the mouth. That dude, I swear, that guy probably pissed himself. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I mean, like, holy shit, they're willing to do that? I'm yeah. gonna, I'll am testify. You've got everything yeah. you need. I got it. Yeah. So after they have the bookkeeper and he's ready to testify, they fly back to Chicago. And when they get there, the DA plans to indict Capone with this information. Wallace is charged with taking the bookkeeper to a safe house. This is stupid. You've got your weakest person of the untouchables. He's an agent that was thrown a gun at the beginning of the movie. Like, hey, do you know how to shoot a gun? Off you go. Instead of having your sharpshooter or one of the head to Malone or Ness, why why do you have this guy taking him somewhere? I don't get it. This makes no sense to me. This is a highly highly sensitive asset they have right now. Correct, yeah. And you have one person, and it's your weakest person. Why? That makes no sense. It is definitely a mistake. It's definitely a mistake. But what we're also going to learn later is that even your strongest person isn't safe. Well, So it really doesn't matter. It doesn't, but I think this is dumb. (laughs) It It was a tactical error on the part of these guys to have Wallace take this dude. Because, like you said, you could have had Stone do it. You could have had Malone mm-hmm. do it. You could have had Ness do it. Or you could have all three. All of them. This dude all four of them could important. do it. Yeah. You could have Random Cop, number one, do it, right? That would have even made more sense than a, an accountant yeah. with a gun, right? <laughs> I agree. Don't I'm 100% hand me a with gun you on and expect me to protect you because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. What if I need you to protect <laughs> a valuable asset? I mean, not just me. Maybe we'll get somebody else that we need to get somewhere safe but i mean i do my best but i I, i'm not going to be the trained marksman that can take care (laughs) of things yeah so wallace and the bookkeeper are ambushed by frank nitty and murdered and ness flies off the handle and he goes after capone he goes to capone's hotels and challenges him in front of like his family members and all of his henchmen (laughs) Like it was really, speaking of stupid moves, I get it. He's emotional. He's angry. It was one of his men. It was one of his friends at this point. But that's a dumb move. Mm, Not only, not only, not only are you putting yourself at high risk, but you have just tipped your hand. Yeah. Yep. You've tipped your hand. He knows how to get you. Malone steps in at the last second, though, and he saves... Elliot Ness from this mm-hmm. this gunfight. Back at the station, Ness learns that the DA is going to drop the charges against Capone because he doesn't have any witnesses. But Malone goes 
back to his source, who turns out to be one of the corrupt cops, one of the corrupt captains. He goes to get more information from him about the head bookkeeper. He wants to know where the head bookkeeper is. And he ends up getting into a fight with this dude, this cop, because the cop doesn't want to give up any information, Mm -hmm. any further information, even though he's been feeding him info this whole time, right? This is, the, this is his source. This is his source for information. This mm-hmm. is where he's getting all this from. Mm-hmm. This dude, now he's got cold feet. He's not going to tell him where the bookkeeper is, but he'd tell him where to go get the other bookkeeper? Well, he might be starting to get to the point where Capone might figure it out and take care of him, too. So you know, Not if he's in jail. Sure, but so far it mm. hasn't worked. So he gets the info about the head bookkeeper, whose name is Walter Payne, and he knows where he's going to be. But before he can get this information to Ness, Malone is attacked at his home and mortally wounded by Frank Nitti Mm -hmm. and an accomplice. This was an interesting... This was an interesting juxtaposition of Malone's conversation with Ness at the beginning of the movie. What I really like about this sequence is it mirrors what he says to Ness at the beginning of the movie. Not Sorry, the beginning of the second act. He says to him, you want to get Capone, you got to do it the Chicago way. You've got to, if he's going to bring a knife, you bring a gun. If he's going to send one of your guys to the hospital, you're going to send one of his guys to the morgue. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what this is, right? We get a knife and a gun here, right? This, mm-hmm. is, a sh- this is an echo of that that conversation he gets enticed by the idea that he ha- he has the upper hand on this this guy this mobster that shows up in his house with a knife and he chases him out onto the fire escape where nitty is waiting and nitty guns him down mm-hmm. this is a this is an incredible sequence i love this sequence because i love the creep and this is also where you can see a lot of alfred hitchcock influence in this movie that moving along the wall the first person perspective as he's meandering into the house and he's approaching you know sean connery or malloy see sean connery not malloy but as he's approaching him and then when malone malone turns around and he's got the gun on him and the guy plays that perfectly well he's like oh i'll back up you got me now copper i'll back up Mm -hmm. and did you were you expecting this? No. Okay. Not not this in particular. So you it, it got you, right? So like him yeah. chasing the dude out with the knife with the dude with the knife out. Mm-hmm. Got that got you when 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 Nitty just opens fire on him. Well, I thought they were going to do something, but I didn't know what. Yeah. I mean, cuz it seemed like it was kind of a setup type thing. Right. Yeah. But it, it's also the one of the main characters too, right? Mm-hmm. For him to get shot up like this now he manages to hold on he doesn't die until ness and stone get there and he manages to convey the information about the whereabouts of pain mm-hmm. he's going to be at union station getting on a train to get out of chicago that night and then malone dies and stone and ness head to the train station to intercept pain but he's accompanied by a bunch of Capone's men. The last henchman uses Payne as a human shield, and after Payne agrees to testify, Stone kills the last henchman with a bullet through the mouth. So this sequence was cool. This sequence is cinematic masterpiece. I, I'm glad to hear that you liked this, because mm-hmm. I was th- I'm sitting here thinking, as we're talking about this movie, I'm like, if she doesn't like this sequence... I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, okay for us to not like the same thing. No, no, <laughs> I understand. But like, I will question your taste. <laughs> All no, I'm saying I is I'm going to question your taste. Really, it was exciting. It was it intense, was right? intense. It kept your interest. Yeah. You know, there's other parts of this movie where I, I my interest is not kept. Mm. This sequence, I was interested. Really? I want to see what okay. happens. The, the, what I love about this is the peril of the baby. Yeah sets the tension tone for this entire sequence. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of brilliant, but also kind of a crutch. One of the things that I really like about it is that the baby was safe, and mm-hmm. it is an error of Ness's that causes the baby to not be safe. Mm-hmm. He bumps into the carriage when he's trying to go after one of the henchmen, mm-hmm. and the carriage careens down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And the... The fact that there is no music 
during this sequence. There's music leading up to it. There's tension leading up to it. The whole thing with the baby and the going up the stairs nice and slowly. And then when Ness finally leaves his post, that's when the music cuts. There's no more music after that point. Mm -hmm. It's all gunfire and screaming women and then talking. Mm -hmm. I love this sequence. This is one of those sequences that I look at when I look at film and I say, this is really, really well put together. It's perfectly edited, perfectly scripted, perfectly directed. Mm -hmm. You don't get much better than this. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. I I was worried for the kid just because I was pretty sure they weren't going to kill this kid, but they <laughs> did kill a kid at the beginning of the True. movie. So I was like, you never know. Which sets this up. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about with this movie is that it masterfully puts things out there that you know they are capable of doing mm -hmm. and you know that they will do again. Right. And they bring it right back at the end. Yeah. and In I, a different version, sorry. Yeah, and I love the... George Stone shooting the guy. He's like, well, you know, Ness is like, you got him. Yep. Yep. And then the dude starts talking again. And just as the dude starts talking, Ness is like, take him. I'm like, like I'm tired of this fucking yeah. guy. Just take him. Yeah, just take him. Yep. And bam. Yep. Right through the mouth into the brain. Man, such an intense scene. Like, I get chills just talking about this scene. <laughs> when I, I rewatched this movie again today. And when I got to the scene, I stopped what I was doing and I paid rapt attention to this scene. I love this scene. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Weeks later at Capone's trial, Capone doesn't seem concerned about the fact that he's on trial. I just want to put in a little tidbit right here yeah. on this. Al Capone attempted to do a plea bargain for this in real life. So this trial for this really did happen. Okay. He tried to do a plea bargain and the judge was like, nope, nope, we're not doing that. And then the judge found out he did bribe the jury. So the judge dismissed that jury and brought in a new one. Oh my God. There's something factual in this yep. movie. Yep. So that part actually happened. Wow. <laughs> All right. Nice. Okay. I, I, I found a factual event. That is crazy. <laughs> David, okay, David Mamet is a master screenwriter. He's a master playwright, but he is not really that good with history, it sounds like. <laughs> so, well, anyway. So, yeah, so he seems completely unconcerned about the trial. We know why. His henchman, Nitty, is wearing a gun, and so Ness and the bailiff take Nitty out of the courtroom and search him. And it's during this search that Ness finds Malone's address written on the inside of a book of matches. Mm -hmm. which implicates Nitty as the guy mm -hmm. that killed Malone. I don't know how he didn't know that before, but... There, how would he have known? Because this dude is the one that's going after everybody. But he has so many henchmen. How would he have known that Nitty was the exact one? Yeah, I mean... It sure. could have been anybody. Yeah. And until he had that address on the, on the, on mm -hmm. the, on the matchbook in hand, he didn't know for sure. He might have had inklings. But this is confirmation, if, even, if he, even if he didn't know. This is mm -hmm. confirmation. And again, another thing that they set up, we know that Nitty knows he's at the right address because when he's lighting his cigarette, he opens the matchbook and verifies the address before he closes it and puts it back in his pocket. And we see it again, mm -hmm. just the same way. In the hand of the person looking at it, the, the hand opening the matchbook, just really great fucking editing in this movie. You can tell where I'm going with this. I know you can, and I'm sorry. I'm trying not to tip my hand here, but this is really fucking good, you know? <laughs> so, so Nitty kills the bailiff and then escapes to the roof, chased by Elliot Ness. Mm -hmm. And he falls off the roof during the chase, but he manages to grab hold of a, a rope or something like that. And he's like, you got to pull me up. You got to pull me up, right, cop? You're a cop. You got to do the right thing. Which is kind of, the, it's also a theme in this movie. What are you prepared to do? It's mm -hmm. what Malone asks him. And it's what Malone says to him right as he's dying. What are you prepared to do? Mm -hmm. And I, I understand the special effects part, yeah. but the whole like acting, the screaming thing, I'm like. Oh, the flailing eh, of the arms seems thing? Seems kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the line that. When Stone asks him, we go, Nitty, or Ness goes back into the courtroom and, and Stone's like, where's Nitty? He's like, he's in the car. <laughs> he literally <laughs> fell into the car. Yeah. So when he, when he does talk to Stone, Stone says, look, the jury's been bribed. He's got like a, a pay sheet of like numbers by, by the jurors, the, like how much they mm -hmm. took. 
mm-hmm. you know, or how much it took to bribe them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Ness is like, he's he and the DA try to get a mistrial, but the judge is like, now nah, we're not doing that. And then he ends up taking the, he ends up going and talking with the judge in private. Mm-hmm. And then when he comes back, the judge is like, all right, we're going to take this jury and we're going to swap them with the jury next door, mm-hmm. which is what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And the reason that he did that, according to Ness, is that Ness told the judge that his name was in the ledger. <laughs> Stone's like, but his name's not in the ledger. He's like, he doesn't know that. <laughs> Ness is like, he does not know that. That This is like perfect, like perfect thing. But... That means that the judge was on the take. Why would his name be in the ledger if he... Why would he be worried about his name even appearing in something like that if he wasn't taking money? Well, that's just it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Well, that's also why he wasn't going to dismiss it in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, Capone gets pretty mad at him too, so... Yeah, he gets mad at him and then he gets mad at his attorney because his attorney's like, we're going to change our plea from not guilty to guilty... He gets mad enough that he like punches the dude out. And then they have this moment together where Capone and Ness are like face to face. And he's like, hey, we got you. He's like, here endeth the lesson, which is exactly what Mm -hmm. Malone's. Again, we're echoing, you know, things that he's learned. This is stuff that he's learned from, you know, from his his mentor. Capone is later convicted of tax evasion. He's sentenced to 11 years in prison. Ness and Stone go their separate ways. But before they do that, Ness gives Stone Malone's call box key and his St. Jude medallion. It's a call box key is like a key and a keychain that he, every cop carried around, I guess, at the time. And he says I, he, he would have wanted you to have it because he wanted a real cop to have that. Mm-hmm. So he gave, it to, he gave it to Stone, which... It's it. I appreciate the sentiment, but like Stone was like he had five lines in this whole fucking movie. When did they get this like great friendship? It was behind the scenes, clearly. But it just seems it. like, all right, whatever. Also, you know, the time that passed here. I mean, in the movie, obviously, it's showing it happening pretty quickly. But in reality, if something like this was going on, it probably was months and months and months of them doing stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they do. I, I'm sure they shorten it up. Mm-hmm. It's not immediately after Nitty dies, but it's pretty darn close. It's within yeah. a couple of weeks, I would say. Uh, leaving the police station later, his job done, a reporter asks Ness what he's going to do if Prohibition gets repealed. And Ness says, I think I'm going to have a drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's where the movie ends. It does, it does. Something that I didn't talk about while we were going through all this is the score by Enjo Morricone. This dude has created some of the most iconic film scores for like auteur directors. Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, or not Once Upon, well, that one too, but that's not the one I was going to talk about. It's the Good, Bad, and the Ugly, right? He also did the score to The Thing, which is one of my favorite film scores. I love that score. It sounds like a heartbeat, the whole movie. Oh, man, it's so fucking good. Anyway, this movie, or this this score won him the Oscar. Finally, like his only Oscar win was for this movie. and Or no, excuse me, his second Oscar win, because he did win for Good, Bad, and the Ugly, too. But this, this score, I love this score. <laughs> I love this score. It goes so well with this movie. It makes it sound, it makes it feel like a 30s gangster movie. Mm. You know, it I feels don't like even a 30s remember gangster movie. the score at in here at all. You're I kidding me. No, I don't. Not remember. even the beginning of the thing where like the title credits are going mm. and they're doing I'm the trying to think of what it was and I it goes it goes it goes da 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 and then it's got that and it's got the little that whole bits in there too. Like, oh man, it's so fucking good. I can't believe you didn't I can't believe you don't remember it. Ugh. Now, to be fair, most movie scores I don't remember. So <laughs> I'll bet it's you not... can remember the Marvel scores, right? It, the Avengers score? Well, yeah, but that's because yeah, okay. it's the same thing in uh-huh. like 30 movies at this mm-hmm. point. So, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I anyway. said most movies. No, I got you. I yeah. hear you. I'm, I'm just teasing you there. Now, what, do you have any additional notes? Do you want to talk about some behind-the-scenes stuff that you maybe found out? or what do you I want to... have... 
some alternate casting and I had okay. one other scene I wanted to talk about. Great. And it's the one, you didn't bring it up, but there was a scene with Al Capone and a dinner party with oh, a yeah. baseball bat. Oh man, that fucking scene is so good too. That is really good. We get a lot of violence mm-hmm. without it being on the screen. Like you know what's happening, but we don't see it. We and see blood I, spatter. I think yep. that was a wise choice. It, you know, we don't need to see the head bashed in, but mm-hmm. we see the violence. We see what's happening here. We Some... see that we see the we see the aftermath. Yeah, and that's all we really need to see. We see blood spatter. Mm-hmm. We see the swings. We see a lot of the stuff that is off. We see all the stuff that's on screen, but we don't see the one thing that gore that gore of the head being bashed in. But this scene is so fucking good too, right? Like it's very intense. We see. Some we don't see a lot of Capone in here, mm-hmm. but this is one of our scenes that we get a lot of Capone, and we mm-hmm. get to see how dangerous this dude really was. He I, like, and De Niro just chews this up. Like I, this is probably one of his best scenes. Like he is really good in this movie. Like. The way that, and the, and of course, the way that it's written too, the way that it's set up, he's mm-hmm. like, oh, we have to have our enthusiasms, and what's mine? Baseball. And he's got the bat, so it puts everybody at ease. They're all like, yeah, baseball. We're all on a team, right? He's like right. making this allegory for baseball. Everybody's calm until he gets to the dude that runs, it's the dude that ran the liquor depot in the in the library. Yep. It's the guy that's the head of that, that got rated, thing, yeah. right? The one that got raided. He beats his head in and Every, and then throws the bat onto the fucking table and everybody is just in stunned silence as yeah. the blood pools around this dude's face. Masterful. So apparently this is actually based on something that happened. Interesting. He had a little bit different setup, but apparently there was a couple hitmen, two of his big hitmen, were hatching a plot to kill Capone and take over the empire. Capone found out about it and he invited everybody over for a dinner party. And in the middle of the party, he pulled out a baseball bat and beat both of them to death. Holy fuck. So that, and then once that happened, then he shot them both in the head. Well, why not, right? right. You gotta now, double as, tap, right? You yeah, double tap. As all of these gangster stories have, mm-hmm. there is an alternate version to this that he ordered this, but then it was actually another hitman that carried it out. So there's a little question, did Mm. Capone actually do this or did he carry it out? But something similar to this did actually happen. Interesting. Interesting. I I just, man, I love that. The mirror of this shot, the, this, this shot of like, we're pulling away and Mm -hmm. kind of circling the dead body as just like we were pulling down into and circling Capone at the beginning of the movie, like that, like that elevator shot on both ends of that, the, this this arc, just mm-hmm. phenomenal. This this guy, the cinematographer Stephen Burham, I think is who it is. He works. He's worked with Francis Ford Coppola, but he worked a lot with Brian De Palma, especially late '80s into the mid '90s. He did stuff like Raising Cain and Casualties of War, the one with Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox. He did a lot of the shooting there. I've never seen his work as good as it is in this movie. Like he, this thing is framed so fucking well. And I and I didn't even talk about this the shot that I wanted to talk about, which was the shot of we never hear like Ness say to his wife, "Oh, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for the kids because of whatever." We don't have to hear him say that, right? You've got this shot on the stairwell with Ness at the bottom of the stairs in shadow with a light over him that is shining directly on the wife at the top of the stairs. He puts her on a pedestal. She's the reason. She and his family are the reason that he's doing this. We don't need them to set to tell us that. They show us that with this with this cinematography. I haven't seen it's it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. The way that they put this together is just amazing. Sorry, I've gone off on a on a tangent. What was the rest of your stuff? <laughs> well, I'm over to alternate casting now. Perfect. All right, let's hear it. All right, for Jim Malone, Gene Hackman. Interesting. Kind of a French connection connection, maybe. I could I could see it. Like instead of playing you know, the Popeye Doyle, you know, kind of anti hero cop, he plays the good guy cop, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. For Elliot Ness, I have a a bunch here. Oh good, because Man, it could have been anybody. Now, the person that was heavily favored to actually take this part... Brad Pitt? Sounds like he oh. couldn't <laughs> because of 
the TV show he was on, but Don Johnson was actually thought or, or considered to play this part. I don't know if that would have been much of a stretch from what Kevin Costner does. I feel like they're very similar. Yeah. I Man, I'm just going to piss everybody off because I don't think Don Johnson's all that great of an actor either. <laughs> so, like, what was De Palma thinking here? Was he just want somebody that was wooden? So, Oh, my God. He wanted somebody that was fresh off the off the, off the the acting, you know, wheel or whatever, right? Fresh off the tree. It's the fucking thing. It, it's straight out of the script. It's straight out of the script. He didn't want somebody who's going to come in and, like, try and, like be all like I am confident he wants to he wants the guy that's going to be unsure of himself that's why he's got Kevin Costner in this movie fuck that's actually kind of brilliant okay I'm sorry go ahead who else we got for Ness Mickey Rourke young Mickey Rourke 80s Mickey Rourke would have totally worked with this totally would have worked Mel Gibson no thanks Jeff Bridges (laughs) the dude because that's what you call that Mm -hmm. or El Dudorino if you're not into the whole brevity thing yeah Jack Nicholson? No. Really? For Elliot Ness? Tommy Lee Jones? What did Tommy Lee Jones even look like in the mid-80s? I don't remember. I don't think I've I don't think I even knew that guy existed until Men in Black. Or no, until Batman Forever. Yeah, I don't remember. And then Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it was not Nicolas Cage. This would be they, kind of goofy, I think. You know what? De Palma would get his wish to work with Nicolas Cage when he did Snake Eyes, and that's plenty yep. for anybody, because you can ignore that movie. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Okay. So any other fun facts or anything like that? Nope. I've gotten through everything. Going to do our ratings out of five? Yeah. All right. What do, you, what do you rate it, and tell me a little bit about why. I'm going to go with a three. I did not love this movie. I don't hate this movie. It was a little bit more on the boring scale for me. I, I I don't know. I really like the gangster era stories and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't like that this is just a work of fiction. Like I, I would be interested in hearing about Capone and more about, you know, the prohibition agents and, you know, maybe the IRS thing. You know, I, sure. I, that yeah. would be interesting enough for me. But I understand why they didn't do that because... That it does, I mean, that does sound boring. I think I'd be more interested in hearing that in a documentary than, you know, a big blockbuster movie. Mm-hmm. And so I know why they changed it. They they needed to make this more interesting. And so that's why it's just fiction. But that kind of bothered me that it was so fiction. Like, mm-hmm. there's very little that actually happened in this. And not even the characters are real characters. Like, sure. some yeah. of these are fake people. Yeah. The stuff I do like about it, why it's a three and not lower is I love Sean Connery. I know I'm picking on the accent a little bit because it's the wrong <laughs> accent, but I don't really care because I love Sean Connery. <laughs> Who doesn't, right? Yeah. Sean it, Connery was was a, an icon. Right? I remember as a little kid, I used to watch these old Disney movies where he would sing and stuff in these things. And Darby O'Gill and the Little People? Yeah, stuff like yeah. that. And I mean, I, I've liked his stuff for a long time, so... <laughs> I My also, second favorite Bond. <laughs> I also really like the Capone stuff. Mm, yeah. Robert De Niro is great. Yeah. I like what you were talking about with how they filmed him in different scenes mm-hmm. was good. I was captivated there. I was interested there. I think more of that would have kept me more interested in this mm-hmm. because... I think he's kind of a fascinating character. Very scary, very dangerous. I yeah. don't like put him up on a pedestal or anything, but I do think it's interesting. There's a kind of morbid curiosity there, right? Right. And yeah. I think, like I said, Robert De Niro was great. He is not in this much. What? Nope. Like less than 10 minutes, maybe? Yeah, he's got about nine minutes of screen yeah. time. Yep. And he is my favorite part of the like the storylines is his scenes and stuff because mm-hmm. he's interesting he's captivating mm-hmm. and i know a lot of that is robert de niro's performance mm-hmm. in yeah, here absolutely um he, it's hard to argue with him as one of the great actors right right yeah right but reasons why this isn't higher i felt like it didn't there's a lot of boring stuff in yeah. here you're not alone uh, Roger yeah. Ebert also felt like this movie didn't have enough action for a movie that was presented as an action movie. You know? Yeah. yeah. He, he didn't like this movie. Robert, Roger Ebert, 
only gave this like two and a half stars. Ah, uh, that's yeah. interesting. But I, so, so like I didn't, I don't hate it, mm-hmm. but I definitely don't love it. And it, yeah. so it's kind of middle of the road. I go, I went a little higher than halfway. I went with three just because of Sean Connery and Robert De Niro. Sure. Everybody else could go away and just <laughs> give me those two in here. I'd be fine. But this is not something I'm probably going to revisit. It was, <sighs> it's, it's not something. See, you like all the <sighs> shots and all that stuff. I don't care about that stuff. You break I want, I want to have an interesting story told to me. I want to see some good acting. While the good acting was there, the story was spots. kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm really trying to overexplain myself no, because why? I know you really like this movie. So, so. Yeah. We don't have to agree. That's, <laughs> that's, what, that's the beautiful thing about this show that's true. is that we don't have to agree. And more <laughs> often than not, we don't agree. Yeah. yeah. So this is kind of just a little over halfway for me. So I'm going yeah. with a three. How about you? Fair. Okay. This is going to be four and a half for me. The reason that it's not a five is because there are some questionable things that he does with the historical accuracy. I don't care about that as much, so it's not going to knock it as much for me. There, I've already said the filming, the way that they shot this movie, the framing in this movie, the pacing of this movie is perfect for me. The pacing is perfect for me. It plays like a 70s gangster movie. It is one of my favorite movies. It's not a five-star but it's pretty fucking close, right? It's pretty goddamn close. The fact that Brian De Palma was able to work in an homage to Battleship Potemkin with the the railway or the the Union Station scene. Just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's well shot. It's a near perfect movie. A near perfect movie. You take Kevin Costner out and you put anybody but Don Johnson in there and this could work. <laughs> As a five-star movie. Even Nicolas Cage? Okay. Maybe not him either. <laughs> but, yeah. So, four and a half for me. I think the the big thing for me was, the big thing for me with this is the turnaround I did on this movie from thinking it was boring when I was just a high school or a junior high school kid, thinking, oh my God, why are my parents watching this movie? It's so damn boring. It's <laughs> pathetically yeah. boring, right? Yeah. To turning around in, in college studying this movie and like writing about Brian De Palma and looking at like the cinematography of it and really seeing like what they were communicating to us. Like the fact that they seed so much early in the movie and then they play off it and pay it off in the end. Mm-hmm. It's a near perfect script. A near perfect script. Uh, just a fantastic movie. Four and a half for me. Four and a half for me. Next week, though, I don't even know what we're doing next week. I know we're doing another accounting movie, right? We are. We're going to cover The Firm. The Firm. Okay, this one's one that I haven't seen. Okay. I have not seen this movie. I'm not a big Tom Cruise fan. I am not a big John Grisham fan. I think I've liked one of his books, A Time to Kill, and even that that book was more of like a pulpy type thing for me it wasn't like some sort of experience like back in the 90s john grisham was the thing right yeah, like right. everybody fucking read there john was grisham. book to movies everything all over like yeah. ev- the newest john grisham movie is yeah, coming out yep. and you're gonna want to be there because you like movies and it's like no i'm not one fucking movie i've seen by this guy so but the firm is not it i do hear that tom cruise runs in it he well, runs, he runs in most movies. He runs all the time, even <laughs> where he's a fucking accountant, whatever. All right, so next week, right here on the couch, The Firm. Thanks for listening, everyone. You have been listening to A View from the Couch. Visit our new website, thecouchpod.com, where you will find a calendar of upcoming releases, links to our podcast episodes, and you can sign up for our upcoming newsletter. You can also email our host directly at view at thecouchpod.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Every review helps us get noticed. Thanks for listening.